Just what is authenticity? How do we know we're experiencing it in our daily lives? What are the moments in our life that have led us to a better understanding of who we are as people? These conversations and more happen right here on The Authenticity Experiment. I'm your hostess. My name is Megan Williams. I'm a licensed therapist in the state of Arizona, and I have spent my career helping people find their most authentic versions of themselves and live and grow inside of that authenticity. And now I get to share the stories of people who have taken their own pathway to authenticity. Just a general content warning, most episodes of the Authenticity Experiment have themes that can be considered triggering for some. Please listen at your own pace and understand that when people tell their stories, it's part of their healing journey. And by listening to the stories of others, we can feel less alone. However, if there is content in this episode that you find triggering, please consult with your mental health professional or reach out to me and I can provide you with resources in order for you to start coping with the stress that you may be experiencing in your own life. Hey everybody, welcome back to another conversation that we're having inside of the Authenticity Experiment. Today I have a volunteer who um, I've only gotten to connect with through social media and having some of that parasocial relationship. Um, But I have found that there are lots of people that I've been able to connect with online and see what they're doing and they see what I'm doing. And even though we might not ever meet in person, we're able to have this kind of common shared agreement of how certain things work and the way that life goes. Um, And I feel like using social media in the way that it was intended to be used and not in the way that it ends up being used a lot of the time. Um, so when she said that she wanted to do this and she was excited to, to come and have this conversation, I was like, yes, please. Um, so today I'm going to introduce you to Sarah and I'm going to let Sarah introduce herself because everybody gets to define themselves the way they choose here. Hi, I am Sarah. I am, um, a school counselor in Florida, um, And I have been doing that for two years. I um, was a teacher previously for seven years. I was teaching music uh, Mm -hmm. to all grade levels. I loved it very much. But what I really wanted to end up doing was working with kids more on an individual basis and in smaller capacities. Um, Also, being a music teacher is very, very high pressure, especially when you're doing like band or choir, anything that's um, competitive. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's quite a difficult profession as it is. And um, yeah, so I'm really glad I'm where I am in my profession. Um, I am originally from Michigan. That's where I grew up and I moved to Florida uh, like seven or eight years ago for teaching. So I've been here ever since. And even though I know Florida has such a great reputation. I do have some strong feelings about it um, that might surprise some people because I have lived here for you know a little bit and do kind of consider myself a Florida person, <laughs> whatever that means to anyone listening. Um, so like I said, I grew up in Michigan. My, um, my parents are immigrants. Uh, my dad came from Lebanon. My mom came from Senegal. So I grew up in a very, very, very conservative traditional Muslim family. And um, 
just really struggled to fit in. I was a very overly energetic and precocious child. So a lot of uh, people teased and, and made fun of it, especially within the community and especially uh, the part of Michigan that I grew up is pretty notoriously conservative. So it was kind of difficult growing up um, as a as a woman like I am. Uh, I have discovered recently, I've taken several uh, batteries and discovered that I am autistic. So I think that probably made quite an impact <laughs> growing up. Um, I really struggled with uh, being overstimulated around people. I had a lot of panic attacks and I was diagnosed pretty young with panic disorders. So that's kind of like my mental health journey in there too. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, so I went to college uh, in Michigan, did my undergraduate in music education and was offered a job in Florida, which is what brought me down here. <laughs> and you don't have to shovel sunshine. <sighs> Yeah, you don't have to shovel sunshine, but you do get burned a lot by it. And um, the the car gets shockingly hot if you don't cover it with something or. Oh, oh, the, the joke in Arizona is that we drive with oven mitts on. Yeah, oh my goodness. That is, <laughs> that is something we might wanna consider doing here. Yeah, no, it's, um, I learned very quickly when I moved here that sunshades are important. Yes. And um, that I keep a towel in my car to cover my steering wheel while my car is parked so that the sun can't come in from the sides. Because, yes. That is really smart. I actually should consider doing that. But I think I just don't have the forethought in the mornings to even consider mm -hmm. that. You know, it's a, it's just a wake up and get to work kind of environment. And uh, when I get home, I usually... Uh, I really regret not having something <laughs> to keep the car cool because it takes a while, especially when it gets as hot as it does here. Um, it's been cool though. That's why I'm wearing a sweater right now. It's actually been down in like the sixties. <laughs> it is. No, it is. Cause I'm, I'm an Ohio transplant. So I moved from Ohio to Arizona. So like, I get it, but the change from the, the Great Lakes region to somewhere warm. It's yeah, as soon as it's 70 degrees outside, I got a hoodie on and I'm shaking. It's just a thing. What part of Ohio are you from? So I grew up um, outside of Toledo in a smaller community that wanted to be a big city, but never really was. Like they wanted to be a small town and a big city at the same time. And it just never meshed well. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I um so I grew up about an hour away from Toledo in Dearborn. I know um, where Dearborn is. Oh yeah, so I'm sure you're familiar with like the the culture. It's quite different than anywhere in the in the world. Um so it's it's definitely a um a special place I enjoy visiting and um I just had my wedding there. So uh, I definitely have a lot of family and friends that are still in the area and I visit often, but um, I live and do my work in Southwest Florida. I love it. Absolutely love it. So like you have a lot of these different facets of identity and, and I want to unpack a bunch of them, right? Cause it's a lot and it's, it's stuff that I think is really interesting. Um, but I'm going to start the way I always start. How do you define authenticity? How does that kind of work for you when you think of that concept? What comes into your head? So I, I think about not only what I am putting out to other people, but also what I am expecting of people. 
Um, so not only do I try to put out um, not only the, the best version, but like the version, I guess that will, I wanna say attract the most people, but I guess just um, encourage more people to approach because as someone who is autistic, I have been known to be very blunt and very direct and very straightforward, which can be, which can be construed as rude. And I can understand completely why. So I think in, you know, as masking as well as kind of just, I think a little bit of growing up and being more social is just having to kind of soften those edges when you're having conversations with people without losing the core of your identity, without, you know, really losing who you are in all of it. I used to tell people that it was a it was a Midwest thing, right? Like we're all very direct. Like you go from point A to point B, you don't go around the the corner to like get there because it's too flipping cold for half of the year to <laughs> want to have to do that. <laughs> but I also know that that then like things like that that we become kind of used to do then have us miss symptoms or pieces that, you know, puzzle pieces that need to be put in place into a different spot because it does become kind of normalized if everybody is doing it, right? And then I feel like people who grow up um, even on like New England and East Coast and New York, they definitely can get that missed because they are even more abrupt and to the point and that bluntness that comes out. Um, so, Tell me a little bit about like being a first generation American and, and how that's kind of shaped how you see yourself because you've kind of had to, most people report having to kind of bridge two different cultural expectations and not really knowing which one to go with. So what's kind of been your experience with all of that? So just like you mentioned, it really has been kind of trying to um, to fit into both worlds and never really feeling like you're good enough for either one or um, like white enough or Arab enough, Muslim enough, you know, it's, it's really challenging, especially growing up in a country that is openly antagonistic towards your people, because you do want to protect your identity, but you also want to shape your culture to be something that is progressive and not harmful to other people. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of been where I have, um, been stuck, I guess, is like, you know, um, there's a, the American Western way of, of thinking. And then there's like the very traditional conservative Muslim way of thinking. And kind of, if you do one or the other too much, it's not good for anyone. So it, as someone who I guess has to kind of fit into both worlds, it becomes really challenging to to juggle it all because you don't know you don't know what to do really because no matter what it's not going to be right it's like you're having to um almost like you're having to put on like a like a different identity depending on the person you're talking to like i notice how i talk with my family is much different than when i talk with other people or friends um, or people outside of our culture mm -hmm. so it's like you know having to change the mask that you're going around with each time you um, change where you are. That's been really challenging. Um, and then also, because again, I want to um, not just defend my, my, my people, but also educate others. It's 
challenging when a lot of times when I'm outside of the community, which is where I am right now, I'm not in a predominantly Muslim community. A lot of people, when they find out that I am Muslim, they, they kind of expect me to be the mouthpiece for every Muslim that ever existed. And Muslims are very different. Obviously, I don't wear a scarf. You know, I have a lot of friends who wore a scarf. I have a lot of friends who still wear a scarf. I have some that took it off. You know, it's a, there's a lot of change and a lot of uh, choice and, and thought that goes into that decision. So um, I can't speak for every single Muslim person out there. They have a lot of different views, but I can tell you what I believe and I can tell you what I was taught. Um, but that might not be everyone's experience. And sometimes it's hard because again, I want to present like the best version of us, but it's almost like, why do we have to be the best version to be seen as equal? Mm -hmm. Because there's tons of really, I don't want to say um, average or even just like bad, but there are a lot of not so great Christian people or atheist people who I don't feel like necessarily have to like uh, defend themselves as much and defend like the, their beliefs as much. Well, they're not necessarily brought out as the token person like that, that, that some people only know, right? Um, yeah, because again, in this area specifically, I'm, you know, one of a few or not very many Muslims in the area. And it's, it's hard because there, you know, there are people who have never met someone who is Muslim. There are some people who have only ever heard about Muslims from their news. And that's very evident in how they speak to me. Um, yeah. And, and there's been a variation of reactions, I guess, especially around here. You know, and, and I think like a lot of what does tend to happen is that because the loudest voice is the voice that everybody associates with the label instead of like looking at it from the fact that you don't have to be the the best version you, you can be the real version and not the extremist version that everybody wants to associate with your religion well and it's also like why do we only assume that it's the extremist from you know a muslim or from i don't know i guess i feel like muslims are really targeted in that sense it's mm -hmm. like oh because anytime i would say i'm uh you know muslim someone would say uh well, well you're not one of those extremist ones and i'm like do you even know what they believe first of all it's just you know the coming the coming to me with information that is confident but clearly not competent <laughs> I tell people, I'm like, it's kind of like thinking that all, all Christians are the Westboro Baptist Church. Exactly. Exactly. That is, and how many have completely disassociated with them, you know, like, they're mm -hmm. like, oh, we want nothing to do with that. Right. Like, and, and so I, 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 I refer to myself as Catholic-ish mm -hmm. because I, I participate in Catholic rituals. I am a member of a Catholic church, but I also respect the fact that there are tenets and, and structures inside of my faith at large that I don't agree with. And I am more progressive in a lot of different areas. And, um, you know, the, if I go into a different 
if I go into a different Catholic church than the one that I go to, there are going to be people that will tell me that I'm not good enough as a Catholic because I don't, you know, protest outside of abortion clinics, or I think that it's okay that people can love whoever they want. Like, that's not my job. The last time I checked, I wasn't the maker of the world, so I don't get to make those decisions. Um, exactly. But, you know, I can stand in that church and understand that the person standing next to me might not have the same belief structure or even relationship with the God of their understanding that I have with mine. And I know that I'm accepted there. I've done the things that I'm supposed to do in order to be accepted there. And my spiritual guide, who is also somewhat progressive in his belief process, doesn't tell me that I'm wrong. He tells me to love people. Yeah, and that's a really beautiful thing. I have never discouraged people from, from finding religion that, you know, gives them meaning and purpose. And I've met a lot of really great um, religious groups that do a lot of great activism that help people truly. Um, but then there's also a lot of really harmful sides to it. And I do think that when you are part of a group, like I do think um, Muslims do and you know speak they speak out about the extremist groups but a lot of times their voices are not heard because they're not the ones that sell mm -hmm. and they're yeah. not the loudest they're not the loudest they're not the loudest and a lot of times they are in situations where their voices are quite literally suppressed mm -hmm. um so yeah it's i think a lot of what people understand about uh <clears throat> Middle Eastern culture and Muslims in general, well, first of all, because the Middle East is very diverse as it is. There's a lot right. of Christians, there's Jews, there's a lot of religions and a lot of languages spoken in the Middle East. So it's kind of hard to, to lump all of the, the people there together. But just for ease, um, you know, there's a lot of misinformation about Middle Eastern people and what their beliefs are. And, um, it's just, it's, it's challenging when you are just trying to be accepted as a person to, to go around hearing that people think they know everything about your religion that you spent your life growing up in. And that's the, that's the part that really is frustrating. And I struggle with because it's not only not only feels very insulting, like to my intelligence, right. because, you know, not only have I done the homework and have literally been a part of this group <laughs> and read the book that they are like always beating read, at you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I read all the books. I, I, I don't really like openly talk about this very much, but I went through a period in college where I actually like fully converted to Christianity. And I was like very into it. I went on a mission trip. I was a completely different person. This was like 2010. <laughs> so um, I saw the light. I really saw the light when I worked at Disney World. <laughs> that was a, that's a whole story in and of itself. <laughs> but when I worked at Disney, um, I really that was really what opened my eyes to a lot of things. But I think to the reality of like church culture in general. Um, yeah, that was a really eye opening experience. Well, like, and I think people don't understand that that's not, that's not a huge leap because Islam, Judaism and, and Christianity are all, you know, based in, in an Abrahamic faith foundation. Like, so people think that it's this massive, but it's, it's not, 
it's, I, I mean, it, it's elite, but it's not like going from being, um, you know, super ultra Christian to being, uh, you know, a Buddhist. <laughs> like, yeah, it really, it really isn't that far of a leap. And to be quite honest, it's not even that uncommon. There's a really um, famous uh, activist professor. His name is Reza Aslan. I don't know if you've seen him on TV or um, he's, he sometimes goes on like talk shows and he's brilliant. He's very smart. Um, and he's a, like a Muslim professor. He teaches a lot about religious studies and he went through a process of growing up Muslim, converting to Christianity and then coming back to it, coming back to Islam. Mm -hmm. And that was my journey too. So I um, really identified with him when I read a lot of his books um, he does a lot of really good work in religious studies if you really want to be familiar about the history of everything. I mean, mm -hmm. he studied it. He has all the research and his books are incredible. I really highly recommend him or just listening to some of his his talks with other people. Um, <clears throat> but it's just, it's, yeah, like I I have done the research about Islam and Christianity and when people come to me and they so confidently state something wrong, it's it's hard to be nice and 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 correct them, but also like and, and maintain like a good relationship. So mm -hmm. I think that's the hardest part is like, especially when I'm meeting someone new, it's like, wow, we're already starting with that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, when there's so many other interesting things about who I am as a person, like let's talk about those things. <laughs> I, I know, it's like, uh, really? <laughs> Um, but it's just it, the things that people have said, I, you know, I don't want to like give a sob story, but I've definitely had a lot of really, really ignorant things said to me uh, whenever I, I tell someone I'm Muslim or, you know, someone will ask me, oh, where are you from? Or, you know, like I'll say, you know, Michigan, Michigan. <laughs> and they'll say, no, but where are you really from? Michigan, that's where I grew up. Michigan. <laughs> oh, so you want to know what my ethnicity is. Right. So, yeah, it's like, it's such a weird um, conversation because, yeah, and there there's a lot of dynamics because when I was younger and when I went away to college for the first time, I went away, I went away to like a very predominantly white university. And so, you know, as this Muslim girl, brown girl, meeting a lot of white guys, they're like, oh, I've never met a Muslim girl before. <laughs> like, you must be super hot. Like, they're, they're just looking at you like a different shape on their, on their, you know, spank bank or, you know, whatever. It's like another kind of currency to add to it. It's the, <laughs> but it's, it's fetishizing, right? Yeah, it's yeah, that, I got a lot of that. The, the exotic, and I'm using air quotes for people that obviously oh, can't see, exotic. Yeah it's a way to fetishize women of color mm -hmm. and, and women of diversity that people don't even understand that they're doing when they're doing it. Oh, it's, it's, and it, and it can be so much more subtle. It's, you know, they, people will sometimes say, oh my goodness, you have, oh, you have such big, beautiful eyebrows and hair. I just love it. Can I touch it? Like, it's just like, I'm not a pet. I'm not an exhibit at a zoo. It's just, it's, it's very strange behavior. Um, I sometimes pull it back at them when I'm really feeling feisty and petty, but sometimes- No, we call that matching energy. <laughs> we call that matching energy. But it's, it's not 
petty. I do and I get in trouble. <laughs> Look, so so one of the things that I deal with as, so my, obviously a lot of my diversity in the way that I look is not something that I was born with. It's something that I chose. Um, being a heavily tattooed female for the longest time was not something you saw a lot. And you still don't see it as often, like as heavily tattooed as I am. So if I'm wearing shorts and a tank top, like people really kind of lose their minds a little bit. And people will walk up to me and they'll just grab my arm or they'll just touch my tattoos or they'll like, they think that they have the ability to, to own my body. And I'm like, okay, so I did this for me. I did not do this for you. You do not get to touch me. Like let's respect bubbles. Right. Yeah. Like, were you not taught personal boundaries? <laughs> I mean, I literally make it a point to teach. Well, I mean, obviously I can't speak for every teacher out there, but when I taught elementary school specifically, I did a whole lesson, like the first week of school on personal bubbles, <laughs> right? You know, personal space. Cause, oh my goodness. A lot of people do not understand personal space. No, they don't. Well, and <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to move into like therapist mode. And I'm sure you've seen this too, is it comes from us not respecting children when they say, please don't tickle me, or I don't want to give so-and-so a hug and a kiss. And we're like, well, just do it. Cause they're your aunt. You know what? No, they get to say no. They get to tell me no. One way that I tried to model for my kids is, um, you know, I don't go up to them and just give them a hug. I ask them, you know, do you want a hug? And I say, you can always say no. And I won't have my feelings hurt because it's important that they know that they can, they can yeah. take it. You know? Right. And that's like, that's the thing that I, my daughter's a big hugger and she'll like throw herself at, at adults that she's connected with. And she'll throw herself at kids that she's connected with too, but particularly at adults. And it makes a lot of adults uncomfortable, especially adult men. And she's not doing it for anything other than my kid just wants to love the world. Exactly. And so I've taught her, like, you need to ask. And if they say they'll do a side hug, cool. Ask them if they want a fist bump, if they don't want a hug. Like, I really think that the pandemic helped me a lot because I'd be like, look, germs. <laughs> That's such germs. a good reason. The hardest part when we went back um, after being <clears throat> working from home for like several months was not hugging kids, like mm -hmm. having to say, I'm sorry, no, honey, I, I, I can just give you a fist bump right now. Like that was right. heartbreaking for me because I definitely appreciate the hugs from the little ones. And it's one of the better parts of the job, honestly, considering we get a lot of the short end of the sticks. Right. Yeah. Well, especially being a school counselor where appropriate physical touch is is a part it is a part of the job right because here's this kid that may have just gotten devastating news or they're having trouble regulating or they're being bullied or they fell on the playground and they're just having a hard time getting themselves back together like they really do want hugs like that's what a parent would typically do in that situation but as a professional if you're like well i'm sorry i can't because germs <laughs> <laughs> it was really heartbreaking. And honestly, I could only keep that up for about three months. And then I gave it up. I was like, if I get sick, I don't care. <laughs> I, I mean, at this, I, I know that's kind of rash to say, but like, I just could not, not mm -hmm. hug the kids. I wore my, I wear my mask for the most, most of the time. And um, I still give kids hugs. What can I say? No, I, you know, I, so I faced the, the decision to go back to doing in-person sessions very quickly. Like we, we had our shutdown in March and then I was back to seeing clients in person by May. 
Oh, wow. Um, not all of them. I still respected people that just wanted to do video and that was more than fine. But I recognized the fact that people were literally taking their own lives from being in isolation. Yeah. And not being able to sit in the energy of another human being. And because I was tested frequently and, and we were, we were definitely six feet apart in my office. Like I couldn't in good conscience, not see clients in person. And if I ended up getting sick, you know, I was going to get sick. Uh, and luckily, you know, I was, I was, I made it two and a half years and I, I got COVID for the first time over the summer. Um, <laughs> Like it was my birthday present. It was exciting. <laughs> but we do face that very real moment of, you know, this is who I am as a person. This is my authentic way to help. And if I have this way to help and you're telling me I'm not allowed to do that, you know, I, I feel ineffective and kind of cut off at the knees. And, and in a time when especially kids were really struggling, really struggling with lack oh. of connection. Oh yeah. And especially when we came back, they were, I mean, just absolutely needing all the love they could get. Um, I mean, I'm very fortunate where I work that I have really supportive staff. I can't imagine being like at a school where people are like that nitpicky about like following the, you know, all the procedures and the protocols, <laughs> because even though we do follow them, you know, like pretty well, we do honor the fact that they're human beings, that kids are human beings and mm -hmm. their parents are human beings. And, you know, it's, it's really challenging when you work within the school system because <clears throat> at its core, it does not acknowledge the humanity of people in its system. Because for example, I mean, there's a lot of teachers who try to regulate how much their kids are using the bathroom or, you know, um, taking breaks and things like that. And it's just, it's so inhumane and dehumanizing for a lot of kids. And especially if they're neurodivergent, they have not been diagnosed. Um, I know for me, school was really, <clears throat> I wouldn't say easy, but it just, it was really good for me because it was so much structure. And because I was such a perfectionist girl, I was able to mask all of those um, struggles that I had really easily in school. Um, but I really struggled to mask them at home actually. So, um, completely side note, but yeah. No, I think that that's important, right? That we acknowledge the fact that there are times when we regulate so much and we mask so much and we pretend so much that when we don't have to necessarily do that, sometimes it like the pendulum swings to the other extreme. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, <clears throat> I was a very emotional child. So I definitely had, um, just a lot of emotional outbursts when I was at home specifically and, um, you know, sometimes in public, but mostly at home. It's just when, um, when I see how kids sometimes are treated and I, as a teacher have done this too, you know, where you just get so frustrated, the way that you talk with them becomes very, not just impersonal, but dehumanizing. I read this really good book called School Talk by um, Micah Pollock. If you ever need something else to read. Um, really <laughs> Always. Yeah, I know, right? It's a really good book about um, the language that we use about children, the way that we talk mm -hmm. to them, the way that we talk about them. And I have heard a lot of educators, and again, I don't mean this to disparage people because I think there's a lot of amazing educators out there. 
but there are a lot of adults in schools that talk very poorly about kids. They talk very poorly to kids. And I think that not only that contributes to the dehumanizing process of being in a school, um, it also makes it an unsafe environment for that child, which just then makes my job as a mental health professional in the school that much harder because I can only control so much, you know, for the kid in their classroom. I can't control how their teacher reacts to a tick or, you know what I mean, or to a kid like sucking their thumb. There are some teachers that are like, oh yeah, you can, I don't care, you know, you, you, you can suck your thumb all day. I don't care how old you are. There are some teachers that are like, um, they're eight years old. They should not be sucking their thumb anymore. And I will write them up for every time. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I think like, so I have, I have mad respect for anybody that works with large groups of tiny humans. And I've said that on this show before. I have mad respect for it. I have one tiny terrorist that lives in my house <laughs> and I love her with every piece of who I am. And I think I've conveyed that over and over again. Like I, I love my kid. She is a tiny terrorist. <laughs> and I, it's she, she is a little dictator all like we called her the little dictator from the beginning but like she literally will go into a room and it will look like a bomb went off just because right um because she's got to set up her stations so she has all of her stations <laughs> kind of like they do in free play right they have the different stations so she has different stations and like there's books here and there's barbies there and there's stuffies there um but like i i could not even begin to manage that many tiny unregulated nervous systems <laughs> at once. I have a hard enough time regulating a, a, a group of adults, right? And getting um, them to do what you want them to do is, I mean, especially when you're trying to do something like a performance-based group, <laughs> which is why I said from the beginning, you know, being a music teacher, especially today in this environment is very challenging because not only are you expected to cater to everyone's individual needs, you're also not being given enough supports. You're not being given, I mean, sometimes you have enormous classes, mm -hmm. you have um, kids who, don't want to be in there and that's fine but then we need to give them something that they can do that's not gonna let them cause havoc for the rest of the class right. but it's also um yeah it's a lot teachers have to deal with a lot and specifically specials teachers i will i will say because that's mm -hmm. the only place i can speak from because that's what i did <laughs> well but i also see that being like that place where they finally get to maybe let loose a little bit so they get a little more out of control um but like, I'm, you know, I'm very open with, with my kid's teacher. Like I am not the parent that will ever tell you that you can't tell me if my kid is doing something wrong, because I respect the fact that my daughter has trouble regulating herself sometimes because she's six. A lot of six-year-olds would agree <laughs> with that issue. In fact, they would say, um, me too. <laughs> right. It's, it, she's six, right? And she has impulse control issues and she has anxiety and she has all the things and, and I'm putting her personal business out into the world. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's one of those things that as a parent, like, and maybe because of the way that I'm trained, like I, I love my kid. I would walk through fire for my kid. I would do everything in, in, that I can to protect her from the evil that happens in this world. 
but I also know that she has a big fat dose of my attitude. And so there are times when she gets very sassy and when she's having a rough day and she's overwhelmed, she doesn't necessarily always know what to do with that because she's six. And I think part of the issue is, is that we as adults have unrealistic expectations of oh. children. Right? Oh yeah, we do. We have such unrealistic expectations of children, especially tiny ones. And I mean, I've really seen um, how much more expectations of the littles, especially the really young grades. I mean, now they're doing like state testing in kindergarten, you know? I mean, how are you going to get a kid to sit on a computer and do a test for an hour? I mean, I, I it's, I have a hard time sitting on the computer for an hour and I am in my forties, right? Like, let's be real. Like yeah. I don't, to, to expect a kid to be able to sit still for six hours. Like that's not, that's not real. And like, I think I've, I've been very lucky in the fact that my child ends up in classrooms with teachers who are very understanding of the fact that she's super smart. She gets her work done quickly. She really doesn't like there are times when she legitimately doesn't pay attention because she's poured. And so I've had to be like, well, give her books to read, let her have that ability, let her sit and doodle and draw. Like she's an artist. So let her sit and doodle and draw. She will let you know when she'll tell on herself. She, she can't lie. She's a terrible liar. Um, <laughs> she will tell on herself and be like, yeah, I wasn't listening. Can you re-explain that to me? Well, you it's know? I'm like, is your daughter me when I was six years old? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. Oh, so I'm going to put her business out into the world again. So I, I am having her assessed for being in that gifted realm because she's super smart. She's super sensitive. She um, has those perfectionistic tendencies. She gets anxious when she's out of her routine. She gets really anxious when it's something new. Social, like she's an extrovert, like nobody's business, but like, there's that awkwardness about how am I going to fit at first? But once she establishes friendships, she's fine, right? Yeah. But like when we know we have to switch dance classes, I am prepping her for like a month. Like, hey, you know, at the end of the month, we're going to be going into this different class and it's going to be a different teacher and there's going to be different kids. Like, how do you feel about that? Are you ready? Are you pumped? It's going to be great, right? And, and trying to work through that and still expecting that the day of we're going to have a, an anxiety attack. Well, and, and, and imagine now for parents who might not be as educated or might not understand neurodivergence as much, who then have a child who might be going through these issues, but they do not have access to good medical care or, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? They don't have um, the voice for themselves to stick up for their child sometimes. Just, you know, a lot of times people, when they are um, in such dire straits, they don't want to cause too much, you know, they don't want to call too much attention to themselves. Mm -hmm. So I, I noticed that a lot with um, the families that I work with in this area. And, um, you know, whenever I, whenever I speak about the people that I work with, I, I want people to understand that I, I would never disparage them. They are all wonderful, beautiful families, but they are in, in a hard, hard place. Mm -hmm. A lot of the families that I, that I work with are undocumented. Um, and because of that, they are targeted for a lot of, of crime because people know that they're not going to go to the police. And so, you know, I mean, I have kids that have come to school and told me, hey, I almost got abducted on my street while I was playing the other day, like, because, you know, someone wanted to, to come and snatch me into their car in the, in the middle of the day, you know, um, 
And it's, it's very tough to not only have to contend with that, but also um, to get them services that they need. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, because how am I supposed to give them a referral to, um, you know, a local agency if they don't have insurance or identification or things like that? There are not a lot of resources that do those things without having that kind of information, um, which is why so much of, of the mental health work ends up getting done in schools. Which is where wonderful people like you step in and are like, yes, let me, let me serve these kids. Let me, you know, do what I can to at least give them a safe adult and, and somebody that they can talk to and know that like, it, it, it's, it stays with me. Yeah. And, um, even with their parents, you know, I always try to honor their parents' dignity. I know a lot of times they are not treated with dignity by not only, other adults, but, um, you know, just the system in general. Mm -hmm. um, and so I try to not only encourage them to do the best that they can, but also to, um, to advocate for their kids when they need the help that they need. Well, I think, you know, having that unique perspective of being the child of immigrants, you especially are sensitive to a lot of those things and, and knowing that even though the, the legality piece could be different, it's still that idea of, I, I know what this looks like. And I know some of what your kids are dealing with and what you're dealing with because I've, I've been around some of that. Yeah, not only that, but um, <clears throat> dealing with uh, just, you know, cultural differences and dealing with, um, you know, making sure that the, the family feels safe approaching me and whoever I'm, you know, whoever is working with them. It's, mm -hmm. it's very challenging. Everything is so sensitive and people don't really talk about like how, how many of those little details um, come up when you're getting someone help and, and trying to get mm -hmm. family services. Um, this country is really, I will avoid using such loaded language, but it's just definitely a tough place to live. And especially in Florida where they spend the least amount per person on mental health in I think the entire country, um, we don't have very good mental health services for people, public mental health services, and not nearly enough. And that's unfortunately, even the, the states that have good-ish, public mental health services, it, they still, it's still inadequate. It's still inadequate. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure. But I know for a fact that there are a lot more things being offered to people in other states, at least from my understanding, talking to other school counselors. Um, it's just really tough here because this, the system that, um, that we refer them to, especially these families, a lot of times is, um, they're backed up for months, you know, a lot of times kids can't get evaluations for six, seven months. And I mean, that's like a whole school year almost. Mm -hmm. So not only um, is a kid not able to get the supports and the services that they need, then it's just, it's, it's another hill that they have to get over um, on top of other hills that they're having to, or hoops that they're having to jump through every single day. Mm -hmm. And um, I think acknowledging how, how tough it can be to live for some people is part of um, being authentically myself all the time is just really 
understanding that people have a, a hard time just living day to day and being kind um, and just showing people basic respect and dignity. It just goes a really long way. Absolutely. So tell me about some times that you feel comfortable sharing where you, I mean, you know, obviously making the switch to, to Christianity and then back into Islam is kind of one of those places where you learned about who you're not. What are some, what are some other experiences that you've had that have helped you understand like where you weren't your most authentic or you weren't being who you really felt like you needed to be? I mean, I have had a lot of jobs, so I will start there. I had my, probably my most uh, infamous is working at, uh, through a pyramid scheme called Cutco, um, <laughs> which all of you have heard about, and I'm sure at least some person will get swept up in, in the next 24 hours because they are just ruthless and still going on. Um, but I was in, in 20, 2009, so that was um, a really intense job. And I definitely learned that I am not the kind of person who can tell half truths because the, the things that we were trained on were basically just ways to make things seem better than they were. And a lot of it was um, lying by omission, <laughs> basically, allegedly, in my opinion. Changing the subject, right? Like, oh. Yeah. But look at that shiny dollar over there. <laughs> and it's like, it wasn't always like, again, it wasn't like always telling a lie. It was like, just um, not necessarily answering the questions that were being asked. And I know I had a really hard time with like anxiety during that summer. I remember it very clearly because I was essentially like, I felt like I was forcing myself on other people. You know, um, not only is it very strange to go to someone's house to sell to them, because it, it feels like a very intimate setting. And it also feels like you're violating a boundary, right. <laughs> no matter how much you are invited. It just, it does. It feels very strange. I've heard that they do them over like Zoom now, but I don't know how much better that is. So that entire summer that I was a part of it, I was like really into it because something about me is that when I do something, I do it fully. I do it 100%. Um, and I really worked hard at it, but it made me feel horrible. And I realized that I, I could never continue doing that. Um, there were a lot of people, I mean, this was like a very fast turning machine. So I lasted relatively long in comparison to a lot of the people around me. Um, and some of the people that I know still from that time have kind of told me like how the system kind of works, you know, essentially if you stay on for a certain amount of time, you end up getting offered the chance to open up your own little store branch. And that's how the, that's how it keeps building. Um, so I learned a lot from that summer. I learned that I never wanted to do that kind of job again. Um, However, I did briefly end up joining another MLM the next year, but it was not nearly as involved and I did not do anything with it. So I think both of those experiences really made me learn my lesson. Um, and that's why I'm pretty outspoken about them right now, especially because I see a lot of teachers in them. Yes. And it's, 
I, I could go into that, but let me just kind of uh, give a little bit more of, I guess, my resume because that definitely had quite an impact. Um, so in college, I worked in a computer lab. Um, I worked, what else did I do? I was a color guard instructor for a high school, which I continued doing. I have done color guard instruction for many years. Um, I just recently had to stop because of COVID. <laughs> so um, it's something that I really love and am passionate about. But the one thing I will say is that you almost, especially with a lot of schools that are not as well funded, you almost kind of have to go into it being a martyr. And it's tough because you get very little pay and you have a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just something that is, is really challenging to keep up with and maintain. And I'm sure any other color guard instructor probably feels the same way um, because they, they can't make a living off of that just alone. Right. Um, so you're doing it on top of everything else. So yeah, that's what I, I worked for Disney. I did the Disney college program and that really opened my eyes, not just to like how big the machine of Disney is, um, just how much work cast members do, like really and truly what you are expected at that job at any Disney job or any theme park job is beyond anything you're expected to do at like Burger King, McDonald's, any other kind of service industry job. It is far beyond. You are expected to do so much more and give so much more of yourself. So what I saw was a lot of people working 70, 80 hours a week, unable to afford a place by themselves in Orlando. Um, a lot of times some people were working at both like Disney and Universal and like doing like their hours like crazy between the both. And it was just, I mean, you can see the toll that it takes on those people. Mm -hmm. um, and then also seeing people living in motels, seeing people living out of their cars and they are going and making magic for children that really influenced me. I learned so much about, sounds kind of lame, workers' rights. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, just, I, I think that's where I really became more of like a leftist. That's where my ideology really changed was seeing how the company treats people and what you're expected to give to it is so just imbalanced. And, um, it just breaks my heart because I know a lot of people who still work there who, who love it. And I would never again want to disparage someone's work, mm -hmm. but they are not treated well. They are expected to do a lot and they are paid very little and given very little protections. Mm -hmm. um, and so not only did I see that, I also, um, you know, the college program is this program where university students from all over can come and work there for like between three and eight months, basically. And I mean, what they do is they pump out as many hours of you as they can during that time um, to like fill in the gaps, basically, of like the full-time and the part-time workers because they don't wanna have to schedule the full and the part-time workers that many hours. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what you're, what you're essentially having is the, churning and burning of a bunch of college age kids 
into this machine. And then once they, you know, they leave, another group is ready and willing to come in to take their place. Mm-hmm. So I saw that. And then also um, I saw that there were some mission groups that would actually come and like work at Disney. Like that was their mission trip was working at Disney. And I was, that was just kind of like the point where I was, I, I really was confused about what they were doing. <laughs> I was like, what are you, what do you think you're doing coming in where like, <laughs> it's just, it was, I don't know. Once I thought about it, I was like, wow, these mission trips are really not for anyone, but for the people going on them. That was kind of what opened my eyes to that. And I started looking more into like voluntourism and the harm of mission trips. And that's kind of what pulled me out of it. And I have a friend um, who I have remained very close to um, who kind of went through a similar process with me, um, except he was raised Christian his entire life. And he um, kind of fell out of it at the same time that I did. And so we kind of deprogrammed with each other um, and just talked a lot about the kinds of things we were taught and how they made us feel and how like gross it was. And again, just like how harmful those beliefs were looking back on them. So that's what contributed a lot to who I am now and how I see people. Um, I definitely think that like when you, when you work with other people and you see the way that they are able to live because of the work that they're doing, it makes you, well, at least it made me a lot more empathetic with the people around me as opposed to the bosses. Right. And I think too, like when you look at some of those, some of those bigger, like for lack of a better term, the dream job companies, the name, the brands, you know, they, that take everything that you can from the people that work for you all under the guise of convincing them that it's an amazing opportunity because it's Disney or Google or Intel or Microsoft, right? Instead of, you know, understanding that they've hyped it up to be the best place to work because you have this brand affinity based off of your own childhood nostalgia or your own belief structures, what have you. And all the same time, it's like you you willingly engage in the abuse because the abuser has convinced you that it's a good thing. Exactly. It's, it's a very, very, at least mild form of Stockholm syndrome um, because it's, it's, it's hard for me to see like people spending all of their paycheck money, going back to the parks, you know, buying merch, having all of these Disney themed things. And I'm like, it just, it kills me because the company doesn't even pay you that well. And, and no, it makes you happy. And so I don't want to ever judge someone for what makes them happy, but it just makes me feel sad and icky um, to support a company like that now. And um, so I haven't really been going to Disney very much. I really like love Disney movies and, uh, you know, for all their problems, I really do enjoy them overall, but it's after working there, I had a really different taste in my mouth for them. And I think, I don't know if other people felt the same way or if they didn't even think about it like that, but it was just a very, 
um, eye-opening experience as someone who has never worked that kind of job before. And I think a lot of people who um, go to college or who go into like these high task jobs, I guess, like they don't really ever have those kinds of jobs to begin with, like the kind of service industry jobs. Mm -hmm. What I think is interesting is that when we walk into these situations and we get to kind of see how the sausage is made for lack of a better term, right? So it's the Midwest in me coming out, right? <laughs> you get to see how the sausage is made. And, and for those people that don't know what I'm talking about, if you ever watch the start to finish of how sausage is made, it's one of the most disgusting processes on the planet. And it really makes you not want to eat it anymore. Um, hence the expression. Um, but once you really like get into that brass tacks and you, you can't unsee, right? It's like that moment in the Wizard of Oz when Dorothy pulls back the curtain. You can't unsee the man behind the curtain. Yeah. And, and I, can't, I can't unsee the people who are struggling to live, but then putting on a smile to make kids happy. That's like the hardest part to, to see, knowing that a lot of them are struggling. And I don't mean to like project, I know a lot of them are struggling. Right. <laughs> you know, um, a lot of them cannot, again, cannot afford to live on their own in the city that they work. Um, there have been stories of, of cast members dying in their cars because they're sleeping in their cars. It's, um, it's one of those things where I think like, once, once you know, and, and you, you, you become that voice that's unafraid to share your experience with it, right? It, I feel like it reaches the right people. Um, and, and, you know, the big machine is obviously always going to have the PR people to, to cover up what they need to cover up and say all the things that they need to say because that's their brand. And there are people that are gonna do stuff in spite of all of those things. Um, but it does come down to that idea. Like if I say it just enough, the handful of people that I know have the same kind of moral inclination and values that I have, they might be unwilling to participate. And then they may say something which would make five more people unwilling to participate. Kind of like a pyramid scheme of morality. <laughs> that would be out. It's the good kind. It's the good kind of pyramid. <laughs> um, yeah. But honestly, though, it's it's true. It's It's why I'm open about my experience. It's why I tell people because... I want people not to feel guilty about everything that they do because that's unrealistic. But I do think that, um, and I, I've had this conversation before. It's like what you put out there on the internet, what you like stand for, like what you make your the face of your brand for lack of a better term, um, you know, will tell people something about you. And I just, um, I guess like it's why I could never do like a Disney themed username or like have a Disney page because I don't want to just be associated with that company, not only because of the grotesque human violation rights that human rights violations, I said that incorrectly, <laughs> human rights violations that go on, just, you know, I, it's so, it's, it's not what I stand for as a person. And while I enjoy it in the background I don't want to make that like my online face do you know what right. I mean no absolutely absolutely like it, and it's interesting right because I don't there are times when I put myself out into the world as my therapist self but that's not the bell that I end up ringing mm -hmm. and in some of my social social media realms like 
if I'm just putting out who I am, I honestly don't get as much foot traffic as when I'm talking about multi-level marketing and the psychology behind that and the reasons why these things are problematic and like confronting the cognitive distortions that are in my comment section, <laughs> which happens a lot. Like that's that matching energy thing. Like people be like, but you're a therapist. You should be nicer on the internet. And I'm like, but I'm a human first and I'm not being paid when I'm on the internet. Exactly. And also, again, like if someone doesn't want to be spoken to in a negative way, then maybe don't come in speaking to me like that. Um, <clears throat> and again, it's just, it, there's a lot of nuance in all of this. And I completely lost my train of thought of what we were. It's all right. I'm, no, I'm surprised this is the first time it's happened. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's okay. It's okay. I because I, I want to shift gears for a hot second. I want to shift gears for a second. So, um, you know, you're you're now the second person that I've had on this show that's talked about coming to an autism diagnosis later in life. Like, because typically we try to catch it in in childhood, and most people again go to the extreme version of the the child who doesn't have verbal skills or who really can't connect with the world. Instead of understanding that that's why it's a spectrum. Uh, and that there's a variety do you do you mind sharing a little bit about like what inspired you to go get all that testing done and, and what you were kind of seeing as an adult that you wish you maybe would have been able to see when you were younger yeah I mean I think in general um I think because um girls in general are not necessarily targeted for this kind of diagnosis it becomes really challenging to point out like what specifically I was dealing with as a kid but i know that i really struggled socially with a lot of people i didn't i don't like small talk i really dislike having to um i guess like come up with that kind of again filler talk with people because mm -hmm. um obviously some people don't want to have deep conversations as much as i want to have deep conversations all the time mm -hmm. and while I respect that, I find that very boring. And so I don't want to talk with a person like that. And so a lot of times when I was younger, it's like, I don't want to talk to you. Like you're boring, <laughs> you know, or uh, it's just, it was hard for me to, to verbalize um, what I was wanting to do. And also I wanted to also always talk about things I was interested in. Mm -hmm. um, not because I didn't care about what other people were interested in. It's just, I had so much information that I wanted to just keep sharing with everyone. Um, I noticed that I also, um, what's it called? I get overstimulated very easily in the sense that like too many complex noises, um, too many lights, uh, too much, like just heat in general or too much cold. It's like, you know, if things are just not right for me, I get very overstimulated and I feel uncomfortable and I start panicking. So I noticed that like all throughout my childhood, but I thought that was just panic disorder. Um, mm -hmm. That was what I was diagnosed with. Um, and then I kind of, as I was, you know, following these pages that were giving more information about autism and women specifically, I was just more curious about it. I noticed that there were a lot of, I guess, behaviors that I have and had that really checked a lot of the boxes. And so um, I actually, I'm self-diagnosed. I have not gone through the formal diagnosis process and I'll 
tell you why in a second, but like I took some online batteries and um, they all came back saying that I'm on the spectrum and um, that mostly my struggle is uh, sensory and social. So that's what I really struggle with is um, communicating in a way that <clears throat> shows people that I am empathizing with them and not just thinking about what I'm trying to say next to them. Mm -hmm. um, I used to have, I guess, like as a kid, what I would do that I think was particularly spectrumy was like, I would try on different characters. Like I loved reading. So I had all of these different characters in my heads and it was like, I would pretend to be a different one almost every single day. Mm -hmm. um, and so it wasn't, it was like, I was never really trying to be myself. I was always trying to put on a character that I thought would be liked by everyone else. Mm -hmm. So um, that's something that like in hindsight probably was a, a big sign, but also at that time, I'm not sure if many people were thinking about that as like autism in a, in a girl. Mm -hmm. So um, I've always been pretty smart, you know, uh, not to like toot my own horn. Um, oh, you get braggadocious here. We do that. Yeah, but I just, I find that, um, I would rather people come to their conclusion that I'm an intelligent person just from listening to me talk and not me saying I am a smart person. It's not like the I'm a good person dance. Yeah. <laughs> and if and if and if after the last, you know, 45 hour-ish minutes that that we've been doing this, if people haven't like garnered that about who you are, then like they haven't been paying attention. Which is fair. Some people listen to a podcast, but don't listen, like actually listen. I've discovered this because I'm not one of those people who doesn't listen to what I'm listening to. I listen. Mm -hmm. I am very, very, very in tune with every word, which is why it's kind of hard sometimes in this world, in this space, in our anti-MLM space, when someone says, I didn't say that. I'm like, I remember you saying this. <laughs> I remember it. Right. So, um, you know, that's definitely, it can make relationships hard with people because not everyone remembers details like that. And again, this is not like, I'm not trying to like pat myself on the back. Like oh, I have such good memory. I remember all these mm -hmm. things. Like it's not fun to always remember every single detail and people are like, you're weird. <laughs> like, no, I'm autistic. <laughs> right? Like it's just one of my superpowers like I have a compartmentalization superpower like I'm able to take in somebody's information put it in a pretty little box shove it in the back of my brain and not access it again until that person is sitting in front of me that's a really good skill to have I am trying to get better at that unfortunately it all just swims around in there and I um, I'm good at like maybe putting them into bigger boxes, but not smaller boxes. They're all kind of like, you know, separated into, um, I guess, like colors and whites. Yeah, it's it's my therapist super skill. So it's it's something that I fine tuned over the last 17 years of working with thousands of clients. Like you got you got to compartmentalize it because if I carried every single piece of information that I had from every single person I'd ever worked with. I, yeah. I can't do that. But if they sit right in front of me and I see their face or I see their picture, a lot of their stuff, just even after a decade will come flooding back to me and I will remember. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's great that when you can do that, I think, um, especially when you have like little kids, um, it's hard because as a school counselor, the structure that I have is not the same, obviously, as like a typical counselor where Mm -hmm. you have like, you know, your hourly, like, um, you know, you have your schedule. A lot of times my schedule is not planned out like until the day of, and it's because a lot of times there are things that are happening on the fly Mm -hmm. or I'm needed somewhere or there's a crisis and I have to be available for those things. So a lot of times I feel like I I can't even compartmentalize it because it's just all coming at me in so many different directions Mm -hmm. that I can barely store it. (laughs) I get that. So I have one last question. It's my final question, my final answer question. Um, Tell me two things that you love about who you are today. Oh my gosh, what a what a thought provoking question that is. Um, I love that I am unapologetically myself. Um, that I, and this might be also kind of silly, but I also really love that I am the kind of person who enjoys food. I love food, and part of my mental health journey that we didn't really get a chance to talk about was I did deal with an eating disorder for a portion of my life. Um, and now I can proudly say that I am like over it because I enjoy food. I enjoy eating and I don't fear my body changing. So that is something I think that is not only great, but I hope more people can gain that from me if I at all possible one more I got I asked for two you gave me one. Oh my gosh wait I thought that was all in all two okay no. okay another one um I love that I have so many different special interests yes and they are so different from each other that's the best way exactly (laughs) exactly I tell people I'm like yes we could totally talk about you know um the the different species of big cats but we can also talk about serial killers and that'll be good too (laughs) he's gonna look at you like wait what no for real let's do this (laughs) right right? Like for me also, I mean, I love video games. And when people find that out, they're like, I would never think that about you. I'm like, listen, (laughs) I just got a tattoo, like love it. Very fresh. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, I have a wide range of things that I love that I know a lot about and that I'm always willing to add on a new one. Thank you so much for, for being willing to, to do this and, and to have this conversation and to like be vulnerable about who you are and the things that you're passionate about and let, let the world, well, the people that listen to this podcast anyway, have a little bit of a glimpse into who you are. And I'm so glad that I got this opportunity to get to know you a little bit better and to, to have some one-on-one time because I connect better with people when I'm actually able to have a conversation um it's just one of the things for me um if people want to find you and connect with you where can they do that they can follow me um at my instagram which is the radical ravenclaw 
Um, and uh, my Twitter, which is Ravenclaw Thoughts, and Thoughts is spelled T H O T S. I love that. I love it. It is a pun. And yes, I am in the process of trying to figure out a new username because one of the things that I'm very passionate about is transphobia and I do not support JK Rowling and I'm trying to get the the stain of her off of my image but it's really hard for me to let that go it was a special interest and it was one of my childhood special interests so I'm doing my best (laughs) and I will um you know I I definitely 100% stand up for trans people um all the time when we know better we do better we do better. Thank you again for joining us for this edition of the Authenticity Experiment. Everything you need to know will be linked in the show notes, especially how to get in touch with our guests from today if you are interested in finding ways to connect with them more and ways to connect with me if you are interested in having this conversation yourself. I appreciate all of you who have taken the time to support this project and I will see you down the road.